Good morning, Southwest. Thanks for sitting down and calming down. I know we're a little bit antsy today. I have the pleasure of introducing our speaker today. Um, he is someone many of you know and love, um, and he's a person who has definitely impacted many of you and have you felt loved by him. And I know that because funny story is I have been in your shoes once upon a time long, long ago. Um, I had the pleasure of being taught by our speaker today as a seventh and eighth grade student at Chapel Hill Academy. So I know what it was like to be known and loved by him and it's continued on to this day. So let's welcome to the stage, Dr. Benson. About 10 years ago, I took 13 college students on a month long trip to Northern Ireland in the summer to work with an organization called Youth for Christ. It was a life-changing experience for many myself included, as we, project, we partnered with Project 32, an organization and a ministry to reach the gospel of Christ to 32 counties in Ireland and Northern Ireland. We flew into Dublin and then drove north to Belfast, where we met about 100 people from all over the world. We got equipped and prepared, and we received training on child protection laws, because that's a really big deal in Northern Ireland. I quickly realized we were on sacred ground. Campbell College is a K-12 boys boarding school and quite possibly one of the first to ever host a house system. It was home to C.S. Lewis. I realized that I was walking the same wooden paneled hallways, learning in the same classrooms, drinking tea by the same fireplace, worshiping in the same chapel as this well-known Christian author. It was a bit surreal, to say the least, not to mention, as you drive onto Campbell College's grounds, one of the first structures you encounter is the lamppost, where Lucy Pevensey first meets Tumnus in the Chronicles of Narnia, once she walks through that wardrobe. Hallowed ground. After a few days of training, we headed to Ballyclare, Northern Ireland, with Johnny Farrell. Ballyclare is a small farming community. Picture rolling hills, plump white sheep grazing among rock-studded pastures, meandering roads through fog and mist, and people who speak with the most beautiful voices you've ever heard. That's Ballyclare. Our leader, Johnny, was an Irish national in his late 20s. He was a son of a history teacher. He was a God-fearing, storytelling, laughter-loving ginger who taught me more about Jesus and youth ministry than I ever expected. He's a remarkable man being used by God in profound ways. Our team set up daily vacation Bible school in the play parks. That's Northern Irish for playground. It invited students to play games and make crafts and learn about the saving power of Jesus. Our hope was to partner with these families with local Presbyterian churches so ministry would continue once we left. Play parks by day and drop-in at night. Drop-in it's kind of like youth group, but less formal, unaffiliated with the church and run by Youth for Christ employees. Johnny Farrell was the YFC leader for Ballyclare. He poured his heart and soul into these kids. Drop and mitt in the second story of a corner building in the center of town. Students came and played ping pong and games, heard the truth from scripture, and we supported and were supported in whatever they were going through. Each night we had rotating responsibilities. Coffee barista, DJ, gamer, speaker. And 
One night, I volunteered to be the gatekeeper at the door. I was responsible for greeting students as they came in, and every so often I had to ensure that a miscellaneous bottle was left outside. You see, Northern Ireland, their youth has a long-storied history with alcohol, and YFC has a strict no-booze policy. I stood downstairs on the corner welcoming students, testing my knowledge of their names, and directing them upstairs to the drop-in center, praying for them as they ascended, Lord, may they meet you tonight. I don't think I'll ever forget what happened next. I was looking up the street when all of a sudden, a disheveled high school boy stumbled out across his yard and started heading down the street. As he was running, he tightened his belt, he put on a shirt, he zipped up his hoodie. He seemed like he was getting dressed as he was running towards me. He's one of those kids you might say is easy to see from afar. He wasn't a runner. Let's say he was living the dream in his future dad bod at the age of 17. I don't want to make any quick judgments, but I got the sense he wasn't the running type and his outfit was not befitting of a marathon runner. As I stood and watched, I realized he was running in my direction. I went back to greeting the kids. When I looked up again... He was a little closer. I was stuck in a vortex. What probably was seconds felt like an eternity. I think he's running to me. Is everything okay? What will I say? Should I comment on his running? Should I encourage him as a coach? The dad in me thought he he probably left the lights on and the gate open. Eventually he arrived. He ran right up to me, disregarding any personal space you might appreciate from strangers, and got right up in my face. Are you he? Huh? Come again? What? uh, He interrupted. Are are you he? I finally blurted out something. Well, um, I'm. uh, Are ye the God of Thunder? (laughs) I laughed. I was relieved, kind of. By the way, he still hadn't caught his breath, and he jumped back into the story. I'm sending me wee house, I'm playing me wee Xbox, and I get a text from some of my mates down at drop and they go, you gotta come down, it's the God of Thunder's here. And he can throw an American football a country mile. And I said to myself, it's not every day the God of Thunder comes to our wee little town called Bali Clare. So I booked it out of my house. I put on my trousers, grabbed my hoodie, and here I am. So, are you he? Where's your hammer? His name was Nate. He hadn't been to drop-in for years. But because of a stupid little football and a rusty old high school quarterback, he was intrigued to get off his couch and return to what he once knew to be a beacon of light in his community. He was curious again. He was a doubter, but he came nonetheless. He had come so far from God, but it didn't matter to us, and it didn't matter to God. Nate came every night from that night on. He came early. He stayed late. He helped to clean up, and he repeated this pattern every night till we left Northern Ireland. God was working on his heart, answering deep questions of existence and helping to heal the hurt he had experienced. Johnny Farrell was so grateful, like the father to the prodigal son. I've stopped to think periodically, though, 
Nate wasn't asking me my name. He was asking me a question of identity. Maybe one of ownership. Are you he? Was more like, to whom do you belong? When I go somewhere, anywhere for that matter, I pack gear. I pack a lot. My family goes in carry-on, and I bring a duffel bag the size of Texas. And it weighs 50 pounds every time. Why? Because it can. (laughs) My wife rolls her eyes, but she knows how I am. We've worked through it. I've been known to pack the kitchen sink, one for you and one for me. Can I... I hate the feeling of not having the right gear at the right time, maybe even for the right person. Oh, terrible. Can I tell you how many times someone has come and asked me for my extra sink? A lot. You're welcome. I had packed my duffel bag with some sports equipment to use with the youth in Ballyclare. Even the guy that picked me up from the airport commented, that's a big bug. When I pulled out some of the gear, like elementary show and tell, the local boys matched me with their prized rugby ball. Their faces filled with national pride. It's the size of a blimp. I had never held a rugby ball. It's unbelievable. It's light as a feather. They throw it underhand and backwards while running forwards. And as a quarterback, I was used to throwing football forwards while running backwards to save my life. I couldn't throw this thing to save my life. I was a high school quarterback, and I looked more like Kirk Cousins in the fourth quarter. School bikes. I'm glad. I'm glad I had brought my football, though, because I could chuck it pretty well. I would stand outside a drop-in and throw it, the football, as far as I could down the street to the scrawny little kids from Ballyclare. Dozens and dozens scrambling for the ball, playing a game of 500 like pigeons chasing crackers in the city park. And then it would take five or six of them to relay it back to me. We did this for hours, every night. I was in heaven. Kids would come out of their houses, they'd play catch, And we'd gather them like fish in a net and bring the hall to drop in. That's why I brought my football. Now, I told you how huge their rugby ball was. Moment of truth and honesty. I may not have told the youth of Northern Ireland that this might not be the size of a real American football. And still to this day, many may still not know. But that's okay. What's your football? What aspect of your life draws people to the good life in Christ? Is this even a desire of your heart? If so, amen. If not, what is holding you back? What part of our lives draw people closer to Christ compared to pushing them away purposefully or unknowingly? When people are near you and they lean in, do they smell Jesus? How much more comforting to know that you're the reason someone would be growing in their faith. Is it about the kingdom or is it still just a football to you? 
How might God use you to be a beacon of light to those around you? Some of you can shine brighter than you give yourself credit for. While others of you are surrounded by friends desperately wishing that you'd turn a light on to show their feet. Be courageous. Do some introspection. And be a light. Light overcomes the darkness every time. Try it. The story of Jesus calming the sea is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A crowd had gathered near Jesus to hear him teach at the Sea of Galilee, kind of like students line up at the water fountain to hear Dr. Carlson. After he was done, we're told that Jesus was tired. He needed rest and retreat. Ever feel like that? Right now? Have you ever wondered whether Jesus was an introvert or an extrovert? Uh, I do. I'm an extreme extrovert. Yet I think Scripture is clear that he resorted to solitude and silence to recharge. I've got a lot to learn because I probably would have been down at the beach at the Sea of Galilee trying to round up a spike ball tournament while missing out on the best decision of my life, sailing with Jesus. I find it interesting that Jesus often drew a crowd, but he wasn't crazy about them all the time. Some gathered because they doubted. Others came out of curiosity, kind of like Nate from Drop-In. Yet some came because they had been convinced that the Son of God was worth following. Do you? I do. That's why I'm here. Jesus' disciples were probably wiped out too. They were on the greatest adventure of their lives. They dropped everything. They gave up careers. Some even said goodbye to family. They certainly gave up what was comfortable, familiar, and predictable. After teaching for a while, Jesus asked his disciples to get in the boat and go across the sea to the other side. It's been estimated that sailing across the Sea of Galilee would take about two hours. Do you think Jesus was intrigued by what was on the other side? Or did he just need enough time on the ocean to fall asleep? Or did he point that boat directly into the stormy weather just so he could make his point? In his divine omniscience, he knew exactly where the storm would be and he set his sails right at it. Regardless, Scripture says, he was tired. He still knew full well what was coming. He always does. Now, picture yourself climbing into that boat. You got the invite. Find, find a seat near Jesus. Pull away from the shore. Christ with us. God incarnate. Creator of it all. Trinity manifest. The one who would die for all of humanity. And you're in the boat. Fully God and fully man. What question would you ask him? Would you ask him anything? Do you think you could even open your mouth? Or just sit speechless and soak it in? Would you believe 
or doubt. My head swirls with options. I don't know what I would have done. I would hope that I would have allowed the creator of the universe to speak more than me. I grew up sailing on a lake in northern New Jersey and on the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I started on a little sunfish and graduated to an 18-foot, two-hulled catamaran. And I remember my first solo voyage on the Atlantic. My father and his cousin had taught me everything I needed to know. How to tack, how to jibe, how to raise the main, how to furl the front jib, and how to tend the tiller for steering. I grew up on the water, just like the fishermen Jesus called as his disciples. For me, it was a recreational playground, but for them, it was their livelihood. They had a sense of comfort around the water. Leading up to my voyage, I had hundreds of hours of sailing under my belt. I had experienced the doldrums more than I'd like to admit. I had to jump in and swim the boat home many times, and I swallowed my fair share of lake and salt water. I had also capsized a few times amidst the rush of the waves and the whitecaps. Exhilarating, but scary. Here I was, 14, and about to sail into the Atlantic. I pushed off the beach with a few family members watching, and I started to cruise the swells, many of which were probably like what the disciples felt and saw and experienced on the Sea of Galilee that day. Within seconds, the hulls were humming. I harnessed to the hull, feet on the hulls, and out on the outriggers, leaning over the water, left hand on the main and right hand on the tiller, free as a bird, adrenaline coursing through my veins. Woo-hoo! I was cruising. What a rush, as the people on the shore got infinitesimally small and the ocean got infinitesimally large. And then it happened. After a few minutes, I experienced the worst possible crash you could have experienced sailing a catamaran. I did what's called turtling. Stern, over the bow, I flipped it straight down. My boat was upside down in the Atlantic. What just happened? What do I do? Uh, Can I get some help over here? Nope. My catamaran is just upside down. Uh, Don't mind me, just clinging to the boat, middle of the ocean, facing the sharks. Sharks. Uh, You can imagine that helped me move a little quicker. I was left to right my boat by myself off the coast, a small speck on the horizon, and slowly sail back with my salt water drenched self back to the beach. Humiliated, but alive. I have a hunch I know what fear the disciples felt when the storm came that afternoon. Let's read the story in Luke. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down over the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the waves, the wind, and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. In Mark 4, 38, Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. 
comfy. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up and rebuked the waves and said, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? What? They're in the middle of a treacherous storm and Jesus is snoozing in the back of the boat. Mind you, these are fishermen who grew up on the water, it's their comfort zone, it's their backyard. They know the Sea of Galilee is known for its storms. It's 10-foot waves. It's turn-on-a-dime weather. The Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake on earth, 64 square miles, 13 long and 8 wide. Sadly, scientists claim that it's evaporating. Even in the presence of Jesus himself, the disciples panicked and questioned him. Don't you care if we drown? The audacity, the nerve... Oh, you, you thought I was talking about Jesus. Clearly, he wasn't phased by this. And he orders, he better yet, he rebukes the waves and the wind to be still. Just like a dog owner demanding its furry friend to sit. And then to add insult to injury, he turns to his disciples and says, do you have no faith? Now, I, uh, I'm not sure I want to be in the boat anymore. I think this may have been a little sarcastic and I would have loved to see their faces go from straight up terror to disbelief to, hmm. What else does Jesus have to do to convince us of his deity? What else does he have to say so that you and I might take him seriously? The disciples remind us that even though who's those who walked side by side with Jesus. They were called for ministry. They saw him teach day in and day out. They doubted. If they have doubts, it's understandable that you and I have doubts. They were in the boat with him for Pete's sakes. If Jesus is able to rescue the disciples from a sinking boat, he certainly is capable of helping you weather whatever storm you're going through today. It might just be a matter of how much you trust him whether you acknowledge his sovereignty, whether you have the right perspective on who he is and what he's done for you already, and whether you have the courage to go sailing. Tomorrow, we will welcome your grandparents to campus. They'll tour campus. They'll hear our teachers. They'll witness our vision for Christian education. They'll eat lunch with you and relive their high school memories or what they have left of them. And... They'll join you for fifth and seventh hour. Welcome them. Be present with them. Sit with them. Honor them. Converse with them. Hug them. Thank them for coming and be sincere about it. Grandparents are a treasure. The older you get, the more time you wish you had with them. Not to speak, but to listen to glean the wisdom from them like the disciples in the boat with Jesus. Eventually, you'll find yourself wishing your children could go for just one more sailing adventure with them. My grandfather's 101. He's walked with Jesus for 95 years. He was married to his bride for 73. He's one of the greatest storytellers I've ever met. 
He reads three to four books at a time. He's the epitome of a gentleman. He begins and ends his day with gratitude, Jesus, and his Bible. He's 100% Norwegian. He's an engineer, a painter, a woodworker, a devout man of faith, and a friend. He's the oldest living member at his retirement home, yet he may be the youngest in spirit. He prays for me by name every day. He claims God's faithfulness and reminds me of his goodness every time we sit together. He's created a legacy of faith for our whole family that lasts far beyond his lifetime and mine. I hope your grandparents have a legacy of faith and that you'll keep that legacy going for the glory of God and the good of your family. If they don't, then find two minutes of courage over the next couple days and tell them why Christ is the one worth surrendering to. It'll be the best grandparent day present you could give. It's a boat ride they won't regret. Southwest, would you stand with me for a benediction? Southwest Christian High School, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that that love surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You are loved. You're dismissed.